All right, take your Bibles open to Romans chapter 4. I see the pages turning. It's a good thing. That's why, by the way, you'll never see, you'll never see Scripture up on the board behind me. I want people to have God's Word in their hands at all times, get used to looking at it, reading it. It's a good thing. Romans chapter 4. As I mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago, we all know that Paul is writing this letter to the church in Rome. And even though this church is predominantly uh, Gentile, there is also a, a good amount of Jews involved in there as well. Now, as Paul has been known to do in his writings, he occasionally steps aside from writing to the church as a whole, and he will focus on a certain group. And here, in our context, here in our current passage, uh, his attention is being put forward to the Jews there in the church at Rome. You see, for many of these Jews, they struggled to let go of many of the false beliefs that they were taught growing up. Instead of simply being taught the scriptures, many of the rabbis would keep the focus of their teaching on legalism or many times on just simply Jewish tradition. And unfortunately, just like many Christians today, they didn't go to back to God's word and check it out. They just simply believed what they were told. Now, sadly, much of this false doctrine has to do with being justified or justification, or as we would just simply say, salvation. Whether it was being a descendant of Abraham or it was saying that I was circumcised according to the covenant uh, or simply because, hey, I'm a Jew, right? I'm God's chosen people. These Jews felt they were right with God, therefore they were heaven-bound. Okay, if you've been with me since we have started this book, you know that Paul has already spent a lot of time correcting a lot of this bad Jewish doctrine. Well, he finally came to chapter 3 in verses 21 through 31, and he shared the truth about how one comes into a relationship with God, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ. In those, those verses, that passage, he spoke on the righteousness that we receive from God through that faith. He also talked about justification. He talked about redemption through Christ. And lastly, that he, Christ, was the sacrifice of atonement. Well, at that point, in order to help these Jews to understand, it wasn't just like here, read this, here's a verse, and they believed it. He, they needed to truly understand this. And so what he did was he made a wise decision. The Apostle Paul decided to bring Abraham into the picture. Okay, Huge respect for Abraham amongst the Jews. Okay, Also remember, Paul himself uh, was a Jew, and so he knew what it took to get their attention. So not only is, is Abraham the actual father of the Jewish people, but they believed that Abraham was justified by works. Okay? So in chapter 4, verse 3, he brings this to the table and, he, and he, he quotes Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, which simply says, Abraham believed God. Didn't say anything about the law, didn't say anything about works. It says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. 
Well, he didn't, wait, didn't waste any time. And then he brought up King David, a highly respected person, if you're a Jewish person, right? He brings up King David in chapter four, verse six. And it says, David says the same thing when he speaks of, listen to what he says, he speaks of the blessedness of the man whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Okay? So Paul went straight to the scriptures, if you will, the Jewish scriptures, what we know as the Old Testament, to prove that Abraham was justified by faith, and then he used David to show that righteousness is apart from works, going straight back to the Jewish scriptures. And then seemingly, at least in my mind, seemingly being on a roll here, Paul now went into verses 9 through 11, and he he really just kind of drops a bombshell, uh, if you will, on these Jews. And he, he basically says, do you realize that Abraham was declared righteous before he was circumcised? (laughs) circumcision he says did not make abraham righteous as genesis chapter 15 said his faith did it says he believed god so so abraham right this great patriarch the father of the jewish people was really no different than a gentile at the time that he was declared righteous because he too was uncircumcised. It it wasn't like 13 or 14 years later until God commanded circumcision. But yet, Abraham was already declared righteous. So trust me, folks, when he said that, their heads were spinning at this point. They're going, what? Did you read that? Say that again. Because that goes directly against everything they have ever believed, everything they were taught growing up was the complete opposite of what Paul just said, even though he's saying it's right here in our own scriptures. It's right there. But once again, they never went and looked at it. They just believed what the rabbis taught, which was mostly tradition. Well, Paul then said in the middle of verse 11, he says, so then, or you can say therefore if you want, he is the father of all who believe and have not been circumcised in order that the righteousness might be credited to them. Righteousness, he says, can be credited to the uncircumcised, which is also kind of smack him upside the head. And guess what he says? Abraham is the example. That's a shock, right? This is some heavy stuff, folks. If you're brought up in traditional Judaism, he's saying, uncircumcised, are you kidding me? No way. He sets the standard for the uncircumcised because he was, and yet he was declared righteous. But to make sure the Jews uh, truly understand that literally nobody is left out here, salvation is not just for the Jews, okay? He adds here in verse 12, he says, and he is also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. The the basic point that he's trying to get at here is circumcision does not matter, he says. 
Okay, as it pertains to salvation. Today, you can look at that as anything else you want, being baptized or whatever you want. All these things, you don't add to the cross. But in here in our text, it was circumcision. Today, it could be many things. But it's the same principle. You don't add to that. Circumcision did not have anything to do with salvation. He just got through saying that Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, was declared righteous before he was circumcised. And now here in verse 12, he's simply adding that he is the father also of the circumcised, but, he puts a but there, it wasn't because they were circumcised, okay? It, he says it's because they walked in the footsteps of faith, just like Abraham did. So ultimately, he's saying, look, if you're circumcised, that's fine. I mean, so is he, he says, that's all good. I'm glad you were. God commanded you to be circumcised. I'm glad, I'm glad that you were obedient to doing that, but it did not secure your salvation. No difference than baptism won't secure your salvation. I've heard people today who, who believe that, who were literally dunked, right? And then if every little piece of their body did not get underwater, they'd have to do it again. As if somehow they're not going to be saved because their hand was sticking up out of the water. People believe these things, see. Galatians chapter 6, verse 15 says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. I mean, that's pretty clear, isn't it? He says, what counts is a new creation. What's going on in here, right? Or as we talk about the circumcision of the heart, that's what he talked about prior to that. And finally, we ended last time in verse 13 which says, it was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but, he says, it was through the righteousness that comes by faith. So the first thing he mentions here is the fallacy, right? It was not through the law that the promise of Abraham was received. It had nothing to do with the law, God did not give the promise to Abraham, right, of, of, of the people, of the land, of redemption. He did not give that promise because he kept the law, okay? Matter of fact, Galatians chapter 3, verse 18, it says, for if the inheritance depends on the law, then it's no longer depending on a promise. In other words, it'd be based on works if it was, if it was based on the law, see? Secondly, and most important here, which makes sense to everybody, we know what Scripture teaches. We have the Word of God at our, at our disposal, just like they did to a certain degree, right? At least the Old Testament. Scripture tells us Abraham lived centuries before Moses, <laughs> which means it was centuries before the law was given, okay? To be more specific, Galatians 3, 17, Dealing with the exact same point, it says the law came 430 years after the promise. So we know it had nothing to do with the law. And that's why he kept going back to Scripture and says, Abraham believed. He went back to the Scriptures and says, look it, Abraham was circumcised before the law. It's always great that he did that. And then lastly, he just simply says the truth on the other side. Remember, that's the fallacy. And the truth, he says, just very simply, is the promise that came through the righteousness that came by faith. It's this constant battle that they lived in and we live in. Faith versus works. 
There are still many, many people today who believe in salvation by works. What can I do? What am I doing? Am I pleasing God? Will I make it into heaven? This battle has been going on forever. So as you can see here, not only did Paul debunk a lot of the Jews' false beliefs, but he kept the focus on faith, okay? As I mentioned earlier in chapter 3, verses 21 through 31, in those verses, the word faith was mentioned five times, okay? Here in chapter 4, starting in verse 12, faith will be mentioned seven more times before the end of the chapter, okay? And so for Paul, it, it really wasn't just about disproving the false beliefs of many of these Jews, but it's also just hammering home the point that salvation has always been and will always be by faith. That's never changed. It's not something new that Paul has bringing in, which is why I mentioned a few weeks ago, I'm glad he quoted from Genesis because that's the very first book of the Bible. Genesis literally means what? Beginning. And yet it says in Genesis, faith, is how you are justified. Even there, it's always been by faith. It will always be by faith. Nothing he's saying has ever changed. All right, so continuing in his conversation with these Jews, he's got two things going again. He's, he's gonna, Paul is going to stay on course here by pinpointing some of the theological weaknesses. Okay, well, at the same time, Paul's not going to be letting up Uh, on the understanding of faith. I know to you and me it might seem repetitive, but if you're trying to reach these people or if they're struggling with this or maybe maybe they're contemplating going back under the law, right? We saw that in the book of Hebrews, right? He wants to continue to push this point. So basically he's going to say, here's the error and here's the truth. That's what he's doing, okay? I'm going to read verses 14 through 17, he says, for if those who live by the law are heirs, then faith has no value, and then the promise is worthless, because law brings wrath, and where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. He is also the father, he, not also, he is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. So jumping back to verse 14, Paul is, no matter what, Paul is going to help them to see this through. Okay? He knows this is no small task when it comes to uh, a lifelong cultural and religious belief. Right? You don't just walk up to somebody and say, well, no, that's not true. Here's the truth, blank, and they believe it. He knows you've you got to keep digging at these people. And so he's going to break it down little by little to hopefully make them see this just a little bit clearer. 
And so he says here, I'm going to read it one more time, verse 14. He says, if those who live by law are heirs, then faith has no value. And the, the promise, he says, is worthless. So what Paul is doing here is he's pinpointing out that these three things, right, the law, faith, and the promise, cannot work together, okay? If you hold to one, you have to disavow the others. And so he starts here with what the Jews believed, okay? And that is the Jews believed that they were heirs to the promise because they obeyed the law. That's their belief. We, the Jews, the Hebrews, we are heirs to the promise because we obey the law, okay? Or you can just simply say they believed they were heirs because the promise was based on works, okay? Now, if they were able to keep the entire law without fail, well, then they would be right, okay? If they were able to keep the entire law without fail, they would be correct. They would not need faith in God, right? Because they're, they're, there's no benefit because they have done it themselves. We obeyed it. We did it. God's going to accept us. God's going to pat us on the back when we die one day. The problem with this belief, and I'm sure you know where I'm going with this, is that no one would ever be saved. Not a single person. Why? Because no one can keep the law, right? And therefore, the promise would be literally meaningless because it would never be fulfilled. If God says, I, you know, here's this promise, here's this land, right? Here's all these people as far as the eye can see. Here's this redeemer. All you got to do is fulfill the law. Go. <laughs> that would be useless. It would never happen. If Abraham and his heirs had to keep the law to obtain the promise, that's nothing more than a losing battle, okay? But not to assume anything, Paul tells them why. Why? How is that in verse 15? Now, they should have already known this, okay? But he tells them anyway. Just the very beginning of verse 15, here's the why. He says, because the law brings wrath. The law doesn't bring the promise. The law doesn't fulfill the promise. The law brings wrath. The New Living Translation says, because the law always brings punishment on those who try to obey it. Okay? So whenever a person tries to justify himself by keeping the law, you know this, I know this, the more he finds out his inability to do so. Right? Right? The more you try to keep the law, the more you're going to recognize you can't, okay? The more you sin, the more wrath you bring upon yourself. God's, this is the kicker, folks, God's holy and righteous law, what does it do? It exhibits man's sinfulness. You ever think about that? The holy and righteous moral law of God just simply exhibits man's sinfulness. It shows, it reveals man's sinfulness. Turn over a couple pages to Romans chapter 7. Paul's going to give his own little personal thought here. Romans 7. I'm going to read verses 7 through 10. So Paul says, what shall we say then? 
Is the law sin? Well, certainly not. He says, indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from sin, apart from the law, sin is dead. Once, he says, this is before the law, at one time, in other words, I was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. (laughs) You ever think about that for a second? The commandment which says here is God's moral law. Here is the holy and righteous standard of God. What did it cause him to do? It caused him to sin. (laughs) He figured it out, see? It's like like for you and me. It's, It's like going out every single day and simply living life and doing what it is you want to do, okay? You come back home, you look at a blank slate, and you say, it's all good. It was a pretty good day, okay? Well, go out the very next day and live life the exact same way you did the day before, okay? And instead of coming home and looking at a blank slate, look at the law of God. You didn't live any different than you did the day before. But now you know, without a shadow of a doubt, that you are a sinner and deserving of punishment. See? You lived the very same way. You did the very same thing. But you lived by a blank slate. There's nothing on it. It's like you wake up every day and say, go for it. And all of a sudden, on on your wall, you hang, let's just say, for example, the Ten Commandments. You come back and now you're going, "Uh uh-oh, right? You see it. As Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 says, this is very important, folks. It simply says the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified by faith. Did you catch that? The law was put in charge in order to lead us to Christ so that we can be justified by faith. He's saying here the law had a purpose. Faith also had a purpose, didn't it? God's law showed us that we were sinners and that we were in need of a Savior. Right? That's what Paul just said in Galatians 3. It led us to Christ. Right? Faith, he says, is what justifies us and gives us that relationship with Christ because he forgave us of those very sins. So it's the law that shows, or it's the law that reveals the need, but it's faith that fulfills it. See, the law has a job to do. It does it very well. It tells us, you're screwed up. You failed but faith will fulfill that. Through faith, we can be justified. Listen, folks, Paul knows this. He knows this argument from both sides of the aisle, doesn't he? He does, right? 
But he figured out, Paul himself figured out that the law and all the things that he's accomplished did not do anything for him. He figured it out. Turn over real quick to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians 3. Here you have a situation, as, as you guys know, we studied through Philippians a couple years ago probably. Um, Paul is writing to the church in Philippi and he's explaining to them these people that they typically call, uh, he, there's a group of people who call the Gentiles dogs and we know them as the Judaizers, right? The Judaizers believe you must keep the law of Moses, you must be circumcised, all those things. If you, if you, if you want to be a Christian, you've got to do all that. You can't just be a Christian. You have to do this before so. So they would, they would um, uh, uh, base their standing before God in all these good works, right? Look what I did. I did A and B and C, and this is how I live my life. I do this, I do this, I do this, I don't do that. And this is how they would live. So Paul comes up here in verse 4, and he says, let me show you how it could have been for me. He says, look it, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, he says, I have more. So this is Paul saying, you know what? <laughs> if, if anybody could have stood before God and said, check this out, it would have been me. I was the man, okay? He says, look it, I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. No proselytes there. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. As for zeal, I persecuted the church. As for legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. Man, Paul had everything going for him. He was somebody who said, man, if I was standing before God one day, he would beg me to come into heaven. That's how good I was. That's how outstanding of a Jew that I was, trained under Gamaliel even, which is a big to-do. But then things changed, right? He came to know Christ. Look at verse 7. What does he say? But whatever was to my profit, in other words, he's talking about what he just said. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider it an actual loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared, everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. That literally means dung. Why? So that I may gain Christ. But look what he says in verse 9. That I may gain Christ and not be found having a righteousness of my own, which comes through the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Wow. Folks, simply saying, Paul figured it out. He had everything going for him as if he was somebody pursuing obedience to the law. But he figured it out and says, you know what, all that stuff now that was so high on my scale of life, garbage, dung, worthless, I don't want to stand before God in my own self-righteousness. I want to stand before God in the righteousness because of my faith. He figured it out. See, he realized his own sin, which he talked about in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Many of you know it. He says the wages of sin is what? Death. But the gift of God is eternal life 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. He could have stood before God a hundred times with that list that I read there, and he would have got death every time. But he, re he recognized that through Christ, he receives eternal life. So here you have a former Pharisee steeped in Judaism. Paul chose Christ. He gets it. He knows what it's like on both sides. He's doing everything he can to reach people who were really, to a certain degree, just like himself, right? Go back to Romans. And now following this up, in the second half of verse 15, actually, I'm going to read verse 14 and then read into the whole 15, verse 15. He says, For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless because law brings wrath. And now he says, and there is no law. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. So just so this makes sense here to everybody, understand that there is a difference between sin and a transgression. For you and me, we look at it pretty much as the same. We do. That's just how we usually read Scripture, okay? But as we're going to see in chapter 5 in a little while, sin was in the world even before the law came, okay? Sin was there even before there ever was a law, okay? But to have a transgression, there has to be the law. You have to break something, right? We use the term breaking the law, right? There has to be something. There has to be a deliberate disobedience to a stated law. You know, if you're driving down the road that says speed limit 40 and you decide to go 60, right? There's a stated law that you made a decision that you don't care, you're going to break it. That's considered a transgression. Okay? So there has to be a law in order to transgress that law. I hope that makes sense. Now, Paul's point and kind of what he's getting at is, is look at, he's saying the law, he's, he's, he's beating up on them following the law. But ultimately, he's like, look at, the law is good. The law is a good thing. Matter of fact, he says it twice in Romans 7. He says twice the law is good. He says it once again in his first letter to Timothy. It's good. The law is good for different reasons, right? The first one is pretty obvious, I think. It lays out God's holy and righteous standards, right? We're talking about the moral law here, not the ceremonial law. The moral law, God's holy and righteous, and it's obviously good. We see that, right? Here's, the, here's a perfect way to live. The second reason goes along with Paul's point here. If it wasn't for the law, there wouldn't be any transgressions, right? As I just talked about. And the point is, the law can't save you, but it will show you that there's a need for saving, the law can't save you. The law can't do what you think it's going to do. But it will show you that you do need saving. Okay? One commentary says the law is good in that the law raises the issue of sin to a level which cannot be ignored. In other words, if you keep reading the law and staring at the law and trying to live by the law, it's just going to continue to show you, I'm a sinner, I failed, I screwed up, I transgressed every single day. You, it, it, you, it can't be ignored. It's going to nail you to the wall every time you try to live by it. Okay? In addition to that, because of our sinful nature, and yes, every one of you has one of those, having a law against something 
okay? It, it seems to provoke us to defy that law. Matter of fact, Paul said that himself. I don't know if you caught that when I read it earlier in Romans 7. In Romans 7, verse 8, Paul said, Sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, that was the commandment to not covet, okay? He says, listen, it produced, the law produced in me every kind of covetous desire. He says, the law that says do not covet produced in me a desire to covet. <laughs> okay? MacArthur makes a good point here. He says, tell a sinner he can't do something, and tell, tell a sinner uh, he can't do something, and you just raise his motivation to do it. We all deal with that, he says, with our children. They are, they are often tolerable until you give them a command not to be violated, and then something in them desperately needs to violate that. Did I get an amen there from Aaron? I think I did. I got a head shake from Aaron. Yes. The kid didn't want to go grab that cookie until you told him don't grab the cookie. And now what's he going to do? He's going to grab the cookie. Right? It's true. Listen, folks, nobody in this room needs to walk through the park touching the park benches. Not a single person in this room. You put a sign on it that says wet paint, do not touch. Well, guess what? I think I need to walk over there and touch that bench. It's, it's kind of a common thing. When you, when you have something that says don't do this, we want to do it. It's like it makes it worse for us. But that's what God's word does. It shows us we're sinners. The law is doing what it was made to do. See? So going back to the law, if it didn't exist, there would be no transgressing it. If there was no transgressing it, we wouldn't see the need for a Savior and, of course, forgiveness. We could not appreciate God's grace, His saving grace, which comes through faith. So law has a benefit. But the law can't save you, see. It only brings forth transgressions. And as he said at the beginning of this verse, what is that? It brings forth God's wrath. It brings forth punishment. Okay? So think about that. He's saying, why would you want to go back uh, uh, to the law? Or why would you want to remain under the law? Why? <laughs> Once again, it's a good thing, but it doesn't show you a lot of good things on yourself. See? And that leads us right into verse 16. Trying to hurry here, okay? That leads us right into verse 16, which starts with the word therefore. The word therefore simply means based on what, based on what I just got through saying, okay? So verse 16, turn back, says, Therefore, the promise comes by faith. In other words, it doesn't come by the law. The promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offsprings, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. So Paul is saying, so knowing that the law cannot save anyone, and that includes Abraham, okay, okay, 
And knowing that you can never fully keep the law, it hounds you every day, it reminds you every day that you are a sinner, it tells you that you fail, you are a depraved human being. He says, knowing this, this promise, therefore, is by faith. And that is through God's grace, he says, so that it might be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring. Guarantee is a good word, by the way, because there's no guarantee in the law, is there? There's no guarantee in your works. Talk to people who live by works. Talk to religions who live by works. How do you know you're going to get to heaven? I don't. You have no idea. There's no guarantee, right? There's a guarantee in Christ when it's through faith. See, it's very important. So now that you see here what the law is for and what the law does, Paul is saying you should know that the promise has no basis in it, right? We all, it's like he's saying all of us break the law and therefore we would never receive the promise. That would be a real bummer if God did do it that way. If God said, here's the law and here's the promise, you do this, fulfill it, I'll spend eternity with you. Wow, that's a real bummer. (laughs) I don't know if I could do all that every day for the rest of my life. And this here, folks, is why, you notice he says in the verse, it is by God's grace and it is through faith. Catch the difference. It's by God's grace and it's through faith. I know we've been talking a lot about faith, and we will a little more, okay? Um, but that's, of course, because, once again, Paul's pushing this issue. But I'm glad he mentions God's grace uh, in this verse, because that's where it begins, right? Salvation begins with God's grace, okay? And what I mean for that is this. If it wasn't for God's grace providing a way of salvation, even our faith couldn't save us. It starts with God's grace. God had to say, God had to allow a way of salvation. Okay? God did not have to do that. But he did. And that's his grace. See? Because he knew that there's no possible way that we could keep the law. And therefore, he made it so works were never involved. Ever. Because it's impossible to keep. And that's where faith comes in. See? So don't misunderstand this. The power to save, listen to this, the power to save is not in our faith. It is in his grace. As with Abraham, righteousness is credited to us by his grace because he knew that we could never attain it ourselves. He didn't have to give us a way of salvation. He could have just said, that's too bad. Every single one of you screwed up and you're going to get what you deserve. You always talk about being fair. Sure, I'll be fair. You're all going to hell. He could have done that. He wouldn't have been wrong. That's what we deserve. See, that's why it's his grace. See, we all know Ephesians 2.8, right? It is by grace that you are saved through faith. But don't miss the point. It's by grace that you're saved. And it happens to be through faith. 
God has, allows us an opportunity of salvation. That's his grace. And the way through to that is by faith. Now, in the second half of this verse, Paul makes it clear that the promise wasn't just to those under the law, meaning the Jews, right? It's for everyone, he says, who has faith. He says Abraham is the father of all of us, right? It didn't matter. It doesn't matter what your background is. I don't care about this whole Jew-Gentile thing, okay? And and honestly, if if you want to be specific, on all of this, when Abraham believed, right? Back in Genesis, when Abraham believed and God credited that with righteousness, Abraham wasn't anybody special. You know that, right? He came from a pagan nation. They were depraved, no doubt an idolatrous nation. Ur of what? The Chaldeans. At this point in history, When Abraham believed God, folks, there weren't Jews and Gentiles yet. There were just people, right? They're just people at that point. There weren't Jews, therefore there weren't Gentiles or non-Jews. Makes sense? They weren't there yet. So being the faith of Abraham truly is to people, everyone with no specific heritage. It literally doesn't matter. There weren't Jews and Gentiles. It's just Human beings, everyone, anyone by faith, okay? Now, verse 17, to piggyback off the end of verse 16, where he says, he is the father of us all. That was verse 16. Now, verse 17 says here at the very beginning, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. Stop right there. So basically, (laughs) I don't know how it is in your translations. So basically, the beginning of verse 17 is Paul giving the scriptural support for what he said at the end of verse 16, okay? And by the way, I'm I'm, I'm glad he does continue to give the scriptural support, right? I mean, we should always do the same thing. It's a great reminder to us, right? He's going to convince these Jews. He's saying, go back and read this. Go back and read Psalm 32. Go back and read Genesis 15. Go back and read the promise in Genesis 17. Go back. And so he's laying these things out. I'm glad he does that. Okay? That's extremely important. And I'm sure to his original readers it meant a lot because those were their scriptures that he's quoting from. I just don't like the fact that the translators split the thing in half. (laughs) I wish they would have put what he said at the end of verse 16 and the beginning of verse 17 in one verse. But that's just another story, by the way. Translators did that. That's not, you know, something authorized by God. Now, following the quote, the quote says, God made Abraham the father of many nations. The translators do phrase that differently. I should say the translations, uh, maybe I should say that. The translations phrase that a little bit differently, but they're, they're ultimately saying the same thing. Notice what he says, second half of verse 17. He says, he, he's talking about Abraham. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed. The God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. The Jews, folks, believed that Israel, or if you will, themselves, the Jews, right? The Jews believe themselves, they were the heir to the promise. 
okay? They believe they were the heirs to the promise. Paul, who was a Jew himself, has stated here, and as you know, in the previous verses that we've just gone through, that the heir are the people of faith, right? The Jews, we are the heir to the promise. Paul says, yeah, I don't know. He says, it's the people of faith. Okay, I don't care who you are, but it's people of faith. Not simply those who are descendants of Abraham. It's those who share in the faith of Abraham. So you can certainly use Abraham. That's great. But just because you're physically a descendant doesn't make you anything. You have the faith of Abraham. That's the key. Okay? So Paul's appeal to them is, look it. I'm not trying to throw you any shade here, okay? Abraham is our father in the sight of God. He says, the very God in whom he believed, or in my, I would say, the very God in whom he believed in the first place. And then to add a little bit more, he says, this is the very same God who, number one, gives life to the dead. Now, no doubt this is a, re- I know the first thing you read there is you think of something different. No doubt this is a reference to Genesis chapter 17, okay, where God told Abraham, remember this, God told Abraham that you would have a son in your old age, right? Matter of fact, look two verses down. Look at verse 19 here in chapter four. He says, without weakening his faith, he, meaning Abraham, faced the fact that his body was as good as what? Dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead, right? As also stated in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 11 and 12, it says, by faith, which is always an important word there in Hebrews 11, by faith Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful who made the promise. And so from this one man who was as good as dead came descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. God gives life to the dead. He's not necessarily talking about resurrecting somebody or even himself or son or He's talking about going back to the same point of Abraham. They were as good as dead. God fulfilled the promise through Abraham, who was literally dead, him and his wife both, 100 years and 90 years. But guess what? They had a child. His name was Isaac, right? Then it goes to Jacob, and you know how all that goes out. Number two, Paul says, this is the very same God who calls the things that are I always get this mixed up. Who calls things that are not as though they were. In other words, he calls things into existence that are not there. Okay? Obviously, creation is the first thing that comes to mind. The creator of the universe. Now, I'm not going to read for you all of Genesis because we're already over our time. But I will read for you Isaiah 48, verse 13, which says, God says, My own hand laid the foundations of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I summoned them, they all stand up together. In other words, when God spoke, they all came to be. 
You heard me say it. God spoke the universe into existence. When he spoke it, it came to be. He's saying here, it was that God that Abraham placed his faith. It was that God who gave him a son to fulfill the promise, just like he said he would. By the way, that was 25 years after he gave him the promise that he actually fulfilled the promise. Didn't matter how long, God's going to fulfill it. The very same God who created everything. It was that God that Abraham placed his faith. He is mighty, he is powerful, and yes, he is sovereign. And if you want to rely on the works of the law, Paul says, you will fail. If you want to place your faith in that God, the God of Abraham, nobody is more trustworthy than him. And way over time, we're going to pick up at this place, at this spot next week, and I hope you will come as we continue to take our time digging through this passage. Let's pray. Lord, thank you uh, for your word, and, and thank you that there's so much in it. Um, Lord, whenever I study things like this, it, 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 it always brings to my mind, not that I am better than anybody else, because we know that's not the case, but Lord, I, I just see so many people missing what's going on, people who say, today we're going to go through 20 verses. But Lord, to do that, you have to bypass so much great information that you have given us and that's hopefully helpful to us to understand what you're saying. And so thank you for giving us that information. Thank you, Lord, uh, for sharing all these things in your word to help us to grasp not just what was taking place in the first century, not just what these, these Jews were going, uh, going through or struggling with or wondering if I should go back to Judaism, but Lord, taking that very same principle and understanding that we cannot add anything to faith Faith is all that matters because otherwise, if it didn't, we would fail. If ultimately, Lord, we should sit here and thank you that by, is by your grace that you even allowed us to be saved and thank you that it is by faith and not by anything else, not by faith plus something. We thank you, God, that you would even ask us, invite us, if you will, to come into your kingdom. But Lord, that is the amazing love that you loved a sinner enough to send Jesus Christ to die. Thank you, Lord, and help us to realize that you are the mighty God. There's no one more powerful than you. Our, our faith, 100%, should rest in you and you only in all things, knowing that you're sovereign, you are on the throne. You know what's going on. You know what's taking place. And we look forward to that day when we will be with you. And as was mentioned this morning, there will be no more sin. And man, that's something to look forward to. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen.